I started shaking out of control. Before I knew it, I was downstairs on a couch with seven EMT people standing around me and I started crying and I'm like oh I don't want to die and I kept saying I don't want to die I don't want to die I don't want to die I have to live I have children hello and thank you for joining our podcast hope to recharge a show that is designed to bring hope inspiration motivation and some practical tips to those that are battling depression and anxiety and to those that are supporting loved ones that are going through the journey in this difficult time of depression and anxiety. I'm here to tell you, you are not alone, and we will live beyond depression and anxiety. We will share our stories one story at a time. In a world of mental health, together is better. I'm your host, Matana. Thank you for tuning in. Hello and welcome to episode one of Hope to Recharge. Thank you for joining me here. My name is Matana. Today on episode number one, I want to give you a little bit of a overview and a little bit of specifics in different points of the podcast about my story, what happened to me with depression and anxiety, where it came to me in my life, how it started, what I was before, how I was during, and what happened after. As I'm thinking now, I don't think I'll be able to cover a lot of the details during my um, episode of depression and anxiety just because it's a very long story. But I'm trying to give you a little bit of an insight of who I am, my background. The listeners can know a little bit more about me. So thank you for listening. Thank you for taking the time to be a part of this community of Hope to Recharge, where we hope to give some encouragement to recharge during or after or for someone that's battling the fight of depression and anxiety. Let's get started. I'm 43 years old. I was born in Peoria, Illinois. My parents moved to Israel when I was two years old. I grew up in Israel in a ultra-Orthodox home, went to ultra-Orthodox school, was raised very Orthodox, but my parents are very open-minded compared to the Orthodox world. I graduated high school, went to school for a year to learn graphics, computer graphics, design. And in the morning, I used to volunteer in a special ed school. Then I traveled to Hong Kong for a year, and I worked in the Jewish day school in Hong Kong. Phenomenal year. That's going to be a whole episode in itself about the year in Hong Kong. What happened to Matana in Hong Kong? Came back to Israel after a year, went back to school for a little bit, and I had a job in the digital printing world. Didn't like that job so much. Then was hired by this wonderful lady called Rachel. She ran one of the largest software companies in Israel. My two older sisters worked for her. She heard of me and she kept on saying to me, one day you're going to work for me, one day you're going to work for me. And every now and then when I would meet her, she would say, are you ready to come work for me? And I would say, I have no idea what I would do for you because I'm not in the software world. And she said, you don't have to worry about what you're going to do. You just come work for me. We'll figure it out. I was a very shy, very shy, introverted person, which probably people are thinking, whoever knows me, are like, really? You are shy and introverted because I'm completely the opposite now. And I was very afraid of the big world. But she was persistent and she said, when you're ready, come to me. So when I was really burnt out of working for the company called Indigo, I 
decided that I'm going to take a job by her, even though I had no idea what I'm going to do. She said, you know what? I don't know what you're going to do either, but you're going to follow me around for two weeks and we're going to figure it out. So I went to big meetings with her. I went to conferences with her and I was like, oh no, this is like way too big for me. And I remember one day coming home and crying. And I'm like, what did I sign myself up to? And I think after a week and a half or two weeks, she said, okay, I'm done. You no longer have to follow me. You're going to become a project manager. And she assigned me to some projects that I had to oversee. I had no idea what I was doing. I had to learn on the job. She had incredible, incredible women working for her that took me under their wings and became my family, really became my family. It was very nice that my sisters were working there. So it wasn't difficult to come to work in the morning. It became a very large company. She had over 600 employees by the time she sold the company a few years later. So I worked there for three or four years, met my husband in Israel, my husband Ari Jacobs. He's from New York. We met in Israel, decided that I'm going to quit my job and move to America to start my family with him. In March, we got married. A week later, we moved to America and started our journey in New York. It was very hard to leave my family. My family is a very very tight, loving family. I'm one of six children. My parents are phenomenal human beings. Phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal. Hope to have them as guests on this show one day. I think I think most of the world that met them and they met so many people in their lives that came through our house can say and vouch that they are unique individuals with a heart of gold that just wants to do good for the world. They trained us well. They trained us on morals gratitude, family first, and the importance of God and religion. I moved to America and I decided that I did not want to go back into the corporate world because I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom for the beginning because I saw what it was like for my sisters to juggle a high-powered job, very powerful women, my sisters, and to juggle a family kids, husbands, suppers, holidays, Jewish holidays are very overwhelming and very frequent and lots of work. And I wanted to be the stay-at-home mom for then. I think I did my share of working hard for a few years and I felt like I want to try to give it my all when I was having children. I traveled the world before plenty. I was in Australia, China, Thailand, most of Europe, Africa, South Africa, I did the safari. And as I mentioned, I lived in Hong Kong for the year. So I kind of like got out of my system, the adventure part of life, because I was 26 when I got married. And in the ultra Orthodox world, in my community, that's old. My friends were getting married when they were 18, 19. By the time I got married, my friends had multiple children. They would have like six, seven, eight, <laughs> sometimes. Um, I should say eight. I don't know if eight, but like definitely had some that had six children. I decided to focus on the family. Had one child, Nachaliel, Paul. Phenomenal child. The beginning of parenthood with him was really difficult. He was not an easy child. Not an easy child. And just remember, I moved to America, had no family here. I mean, I had cousins and aunts and uncles that I'm close to, but my immediate family, my parents were in Israel, my sisters, my brothers were in Israel, my friends were in Israel, and I was alone. It was a very hard beginning of parenting. He was a difficult baby, but I stuck it through. A few years later, we had another baby, Javi, Eve, sweetheart, 
as sweet can be. Honey, sugar, phenomenal girl. And then we had Shmaryahu. Sam, what a child. Wow. He is, he was like my teddy bear. There was something special about him. He was just my little comfort. He was amazing, is amazing, I should say. But as a baby, we had a, a real, 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 real type bond. And there's a reason why I'm telling you this. is because when, right after he was born, like a year later, I found myself with a full-blown panic attack one evening. It was a Jewish holiday in the month of May. I was jet-lagged from returning from Israel, visiting, uh, visiting Israel the day before, two days before. I was very jet-lagged, and it was two-day holiday here. I worked hard. We had a lot of guests over coming for that holiday, and I fell asleep on the couch the first night of the holiday, woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning from being jet-lagged into a full-blown panic attack. Now, I didn't know what a panic attack was. I just knew that I felt like I was dying. The room was spinning. I felt weak. I felt like someone was pulling my soul out. I felt like I didn't even have the strength to speak. This is the first time I ever felt this way. It was something very new to me. I called my husband and I'm like, Ari, Ari, I'm dying. I'm dying. I remember it's three o'clock in the morning. And he's like, sweetie, you're not dying. Maybe you need a drink. I'm like, no. And I start screaming and like crying. And I, I didn't know what to do. And I was, it's, it was the first time that I felt hopeless. And I'm like, oh my God, is this the end of my world? Is this the end of my life? I have three children. I can't die. I have a one-year-old. This cannot be. This cannot be. And I'm, and I'm literally hyperventilating. After three, four minutes, I was shaking like a leaf. Just thinking about it gives me chills, just talking about it. And I said to my husband, I said, Ari, call 911. Call 911. It wasn't 911. It was Hatzalah, which is the Jewish 911, the community 911. And he's like, I don't think you need it. Just breathe. Um, maybe sit up. And I'm like, no, I'm telling you. And suddenly I stopped speaking. Like he saw I couldn't speak. I started shaking out of control before I knew it. I was downstairs on a couch with seven EMT people standing around me, and I started crying. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to die. And I kept saying, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I have to live. I have children. And they said, okay. They called the ambulance. I said, we're taking her to the emergency room. Something with my heart was beating way too fast or something like that. I don't even remember the diagnosis. We go there. We go to the emergency room. They take all the tests. EKG, MRI, every blood test was there all night until, I mean, the rest of the night. It wasn't so much left of the night. And by, I think, 10 o'clock in the morning, the doctor came and says, how are you feeling? I said, a little bit better. I think they gave me liquids. And he looked at me and he said, I have good news. You're perfectly healthy. And I looked at him. I'm like, good news? What does that mean? There is no way I am healthy. I know what I felt yesterday. That was not a clean bell of health. So he said, no, you're healthy. Your heart's fine. Nothing in the head. Nothing in your blood. We took a chest x-ray. You're fine. Your lungs. I said, so what was that? He said, well, that was a panic attack. I said, a panic attack? What is a panic attack? So he gave me some literature to read about panic attacks, which I, of course, 
didn't want to even address or or look at because in my mind and in my heart I said no way is this something not physical because I physically felt like I was dying and um, he went into explaining a little bit about what anxiety is I came home and I was really down like really down and I was afraid to go to sleep so for three nights I'm not sleeping the adrenaline every time I dozed off from tiredness like the adrenaline kicked in and I was testing to see if my lungs are like breathing properly is my heart beating too fast that fear of like what's happening to me just monitoring me I think within a week maybe it was a little bit longer every time I left the house I would call my husband and say stay on the phone with me just in case I pass out I had this fear of life I had a fear of what will be if I'm just driving or if I'm walking or if I'm shopping or if I'm with my children and I'll just pass out a few days after when I went to the park with my son, I was on the phone with my husband. I kept on calling him, kept on calling him. I think I'm going to pass out. I think I'm going to pass out. And he's like, no, you're not going to pass out. Just breathe, just breathe, just breathe. Now, one of the things that they don't tell you really in life, which makes sense that they don't tell you, but when somebody is having an anxiety attack, a panic attack, breathing fast is the worst because it makes you feel more dizzy and it enhances the fear of death or whatever you're going through. You're supposed to breathe very slowly, deep breaths, which I learned after the hospital. He's on the phone with me, Ari's on the phone with me, and he's like, okay, five breaths in, hold, seven out. And I'm like, Ari, my, my, my lungs are going to explode. My lungs are going to explode. Or I would call him and say, okay, just come, come, come get me from the park or come get me from the store or whatever I was. And slowly I deteriorated. And I think within a few weeks, I was not leaving my house. And within a month, I was not leaving my bed. I went into deep depression. It was dark. It was lonely. It was scary. And I think the scariest part was that I didn't know much about it. I started really reading about it, but the more I was reading about it, the more anxious I got, and the more scared I got, the more I thought, like, I'm crazy. This is my new me. Where, as, where am I? Where's Matana? What's going to be with me? How will I continue life like this? Will this be my life forever? How am I going to feed my children? How am I driving my kids to school? How am I going shopping? How am I going to be a wife? What's going to happen? You go through life reading about mental illness, but you don't really know what it is until it hits you, unfortunately. And then you have to learn about it the hard way. I think I would sleep through the mornings. I couldn't get out of bed. Ari would come into the room and say to me in the morning, how was your night? And it would be a night of battling a lot of horrible voices in the mind horrible fears, very sad moments. And I would say, I, and it would be five o'clock in the morning and I didn't shut my eyes yet because the whole night I'm in anxiety attack, breathing through it. And would come the morning and I'm exhausted from fighting. A fight is hard. And in the morning I would say, I can't get out of bed and it would get the kids to school. I would hardly see them out. And I felt so low that I couldn't even be a mother. And Ari would say, okay, go back to sleep. Let me know if you need anything. And this was going on for two months, maybe a little bit longer. I had amazing, amazing friends, amazing, amazing, amazing friends that would check in on me 
They would come to my house. They would make me food. I would not want to eat. I couldn't swallow. I started having nausea and a lack of appetite. And my goal, I remember it used to be my goal for the day was to finish a half a banana and drink a half of a protein shake, a half, which was um, a tiny bottle. That was my goal for the day because I kept on saying to myself, I'm weak because I'm not eating. And because I'm not eating, I feel dizzy. And because I feel dizzy, I feel anxious. Because I feel anxious, I can't sleep. And because I can't sleep, I can't function in the morning. And then it's like a loop. So I had to force myself to, to eat and to drink. My friends really were my cheerleaders of, um, okay, try your best today. Tomorrow's another day. Some of them that would come over, they actually went through anxiety and they would um, give me hope and tips and share their story, which made me feel like I'm not alone, made me feel secure that there's life after depression and anxiety. And I saw them functioning. So I said, okay, if they went through this and they came out, okay, maybe I will too. And came August and I I hit a very big low of pain, of depression pain, like a real, real, real low. It was a fast day for us in the Jewish world. It was Tisha B'Av. My family was in Israel. I mean, my parents, my siblings were in Israel. And I did not fast, of course. I was hardly eating, but I needed any kind of nutrition to keep me afloat. I remember coming home from a walk and the pain in my heart and chest was so strong that deep depression was so strong I started crying and I said Ari listen I can't take this anymore I can't do this alone get me to the top doctor get me to any therapist get me to any psychiatrist get me to anything that will help me heal because I don't know what this is. I thought I did a little bit of research, but I realized that I had no idea what it was. And uh, I said, just end this misery. Whatever it takes, end this misery, because I cannot take one more hour of this. I cannot. I remember calling my mother in Israel. She was fasting. It's a very big fast day. And I said to her, Ima, I'm not doing well. I'm really not doing well. Get on a plane and come help me get better. I'm tearing up as I'm saying it. It was a moment of acceptance. I think we go through denial, we go through fear, we go through moments of not knowing what it is. And that was my moment of acceptance of saying, whatever it takes, I am going to fight the fight, and I'm going to heal and come to terms with the fact that I'm not okay. And not try to go through the motions during the day here and there and just try to get through it, but look it in the eye and say, yeah, there's something really wrong here and I need to fix it. My mother, wow, is she the most amazing human being on planet Earth? She said, Matana, I'll do anything I can to help you. She said to me, do you want me to get on a plane right now or can I wait till the fast is over in a few hours? I said to her, I'm going now with Ari to a therapist. He found a therapist that was open SOS. It was an art therapist. She was lovely. And after I speak to the therapist, I'll call you back. But I need you here now. I need you to come to America. Help me find a doctor. Take care of my children while I'm healing. 
maybe even pack me up and take us to Israel for a few months that I could do the healing journey over there that you can help me with my children and maybe with the fact that I have my brothers and sisters that are so supportive around me, my healing journey will go faster. She's like, okay, I'm coming. The next day she showed up at my door. She is just an angel. And she has this calming energy to her. Don't worry, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. We'll get through this. You're good. You're good. And she said to me, she said to me the wisest words, what, what can I do today to make your pain a little bit less? And I thought that was the smartest words. Instead of coming with these wise ideas, she's asking me, even if it's not a rational thing, she's asking me, what do you want? What do you need? And I said, you know what, Ima? I want to go back to all the doctors, the heart. I want a heart specialist. I want a lung specialist. I want to go to another CT, another MRI of my mind. I want to go through everything again to make sure that really my body is not fighting something because I feel like my body is fighting something. Let's go find out that that I'm really fine blood test. She's like, okay, let's go. And she started calling people. My brother's very connected also. We tried to get really good doctors that I should trust them, that they really give me a clean bill of health. So the next week we just went from doctor to doctor, appointment to appointment, and she was so patient with me, so kind. Ari was taking care of the children or Ari was the chauffeur driving us to all of our appointments. And it was just, it felt so comforting to know that she's here and she's going to hold me through this process of healing. After about a week or two of getting a clean bill of physical health, my mother said, okay, it's time to see a psychiatrist. So I said, okay. I said, but you know what, Ima? I want to see a very good psychiatrist that will monitor anything that he would give me if there would be any meds. I want somebody holding my hands because I was very against medication in the beginning. I did not want to be on any medication. I had this big, dark vision of meds. And I said, I'm I'm scared of medication. And what's it going to do to me? Um, We did some research. My aunt is a therapist in New York City. And she recommended a psychiatrist that she thinks highly of. We went to see him. He was the most lovely human being. He gave me such a a warm feeling of comfort. Um, He sat with me for two and a half hours, Dr. Parker. I still owe him a tremendous debt of gratitude. Every now and then I text him just to say, hey, doctor, this is Matana. I'm good. And he'll say to me, you know, not many people call me when they're good. They call me when they're not good. Thank you for checking in. And he he took so much effort and time to explain to me what was going on in my brain. What is mental illness? What is depression and anxiety? Why do they come together? What does it mean from a chemical point of view? I left feeling very tired, tired of the idea that this is going to be a long road to recovery. But I was so grateful for medication that can stop my pain right there and there. I knew there will be side effects and I was a little bit scared of the side effects. But the idea of pausing the pain, of removing somewhat of it was so exciting for me. And I said to him, what what will it be like to go through life with medication? He said, you know what? 
Some people live the rest of their life with meds and it's fine. And some people go on it and go off of it and then they tweak it, they go less. It depends on the human being. It depends on what's going on in their lives. He was very straightforward with me. And he said, let's not plan the rest of our lives. Let's plan the now, which is very hard for me. I always like long, looking long-term, seeing the end of the movie. I can never watch a movie and just go through the movie. I need to watch the end of the movie right away. When I read a book, I, I read the first few chapters and skip to the end. So I needed to, to find out, okay, in two years, what's going to be? In one year, what's going to be? In 10 years, will I, like, what am I going to be like? By the time I left Dr. Parker's office, he gave me a plan of what we're going to start two different medication, one will be for short term, one will be for long term. And he explained to me how the different chemicals work with the brain, what I should use when I'm going into a full-blown panic attack, what should I use to just start functioning in life. He told me the side effects. I read up a lot about it. Uh, I must say it became my crutch. It did become my crutch, this medication, but it was a little, it was such a sense of relief that I have something that can control the way I feel. But one of the things that he said to me, which I don't think many psychiatrists say that out there, he said to me, you know, Matana, the real way of healing is not only medication. You need to calm your mind. You need to go to therapy. You need to figure out what's going on inside. You need to go to meditation and yoga. He said yoga is just phenomenal for people that suffer. And yoga helps people heal and sometimes even get off medication. And I was shocked. I was shocked that a doctor is actually going to admit to that. And I took those words to heart, started yoga right away. And yoga became part of my daily ritual every single day, every single day, sometimes twice a day, I went to yoga. After about a week of um, being on the medication and he was like tweaking it here and there and calling me to see how I'm doing, we went to Israel for the summer, for the rest of the summer and the high holidays. We were there for about two months. We really like had a good summer. I remember smiling, giggling, going to a beach, even go going out with people. But the one thing that I felt different was that I was in a cloud. The medication made me feel like I was in a cloud. It took away the deep, deep, deep darkness pain, but I was in a cloud. In the beginning, I had to take Ambien in order to sleep at night besides all the medication that I was on because I wasn't sleeping at night. And then once I got the um, further into the medication, it took really took effect. It takes sometimes two months or three months to take effect. I was able to sleep without an Ambien. We came back to America and I thought I was okay. This is the new me. Matana on a medication. I was doing my therapy. I was doing yoga, but I was still in a cloud and I still had anxiety, but not high anxiety. It was like a low level of a down. I want to mention something that I didn't mention in the beginning of the podcast, that before this first episode happened of the panic attack, I was a happy person, uh, excited person, loved life, loved action, running around, doing, active, involved. I just loved life. And the fear of losing life was so strong with a panic attack that I said to myself, I'll do anything to heal. I was determined to heal. I said, I am going to find a way to get out of this because 
I want my life back. I want my real life back, the old Matana. But what I didn't realize that the old Matana was far from perfect and the old Matana needed a lot of healing and a lot of work. And she was living in this fake life. But if not for this journey of depression and anxiety, I wouldn't get to the real Matana that was li- living the life on, uh, I would call on a low level of her potential. That was an overview of the first episode and my first interaction and my welcoming to the depression and anxiety world. The journey continues for another two and a half years, but that's uh, enough for this episode, I think. In the future episodes, I'm going to try to give you a little bit more of the day-to-day struggles, the ups and downs, um, the different challenges that I went through, and the triumphs, my big aha moments. Hopefully, this episode gave you a little bit more of an insight of who I am, my passion behind breaking the stigma of depression and anxiety. I went through such a deep, dark time that I don't want anybody to go through it alone. And I had such a sense of community and help from doctors, family, friends. And I felt so blessed that I had all this. And I felt so lucky. And I know that without it, I probably wouldn't have come this far and this fast. And I want to give it back to the world. And I'm hoping that this podcast will give some inspiration for others to seek help, to seek the community, to seek friends, to seek Any outside force that can help, if it's doctors, psychiatrists, healers, to try to get to the how of their journey. How can they heal? How can they become better than today? And if they're living in their secret, how to come out of the secret, how to share it with the world, how to share it with themselves, how to accept it, how to come to terms with it, how to become the better version of who they are during and after, if they can be the after, the depression and anxiety. Thank you for listening. I appreciate your time. If you think anybody can benefit from this podcast of feeling that they're not alone in this journey, please share with others. Please tell people about it because there are so many people out there battling depression and anxiety. And it's not a journey one can do alone or should need to do alone. By you sharing this, you might save a life. You might give hope. You might even be a part of somebody's journey to heal. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us and taking the time to listen. I really appreciate it. Please hit the subscribe button so you can hear further episodes. If you are listening to us on iTunes, please leave feedback and ratings below. Let us know if there's any topic that you would like to hear from us in the future. Bye till next time.